Thank you. I seem to have developed a new habit, haven't I? <laughs> Inadvertently shutting off the microphone. Well, you know, everybody's got to have a skill. First Peter <clears throat> chapter 1, verses 22 through 25. Here now, the inerrant, infallible, and inspired word of God. Seeing that ye have purified your souls in obeying the truth through the Spirit unto unfeigned love of the brethren, see that ye love one another with a pure heart fervently, being born again. Not of corruptible seed, but of incorruptible, by the word of God which liveth and abideth forever. For all flesh is grass, and all the glory of man as the flower of grass. The grass withereth, and the flower thereof falleth away, but the word of the Lord endureth forever. And this is the word which by the gospel is preached unto you. May God add his blessing to the reading and hearing of his most holy word. We will begin with a quotation from the Reverend John Owen, who will introduce uh, the sermon today. I think that uh, if you were to read something on the Holy Spirit, John Owen's essay on the Spirit is as good as any of them, and I commend it to you for your reading if you want to advance that study some that we will undertake this week and next. We're taking a very brief and yet hopefully a very encouraging look at the ministry of the Spirit. Owen writes, Take away the Spirit from the Gospel and you render it a dead letter and leave the New Testament of no more use unto Christians than the Old Testament is of unto the Jews. It is therefore a mischievous imagination proceeding from ignorance, blindness, and unbelief, that there is no more in the gospel but what is contained under any other doctrine or declaration of truth, that it is nothing but a book for men to exercise their reason in and upon and to improve the things of it by the same faculty. For this is to separate the spirit or the dispensation of the spirit from it which is in truth to destroy it and therewith is the covenant of God rejected, which is that his word and spirit go together. Isaiah fifty nine twenty one. Well, I think that's very well said. It's sort of what we said last week, maybe a little shorter, which is odd for John Owen, right? Because he's normally very, what we say, prolix, right? P-R-O-L-I-X, that means wordy. So it is an interesting thing to, to think about, isn't it? That the word and spirit go together. We said last week uh, in our review, our brief review, that the ministry of the spirit cannot be exaggerated in the life of the believer. That it is by the spirit that we believe. This is what Peter says here. You have purified your souls in obeying the truth through the spirit. This has been our impetus to do a brief pneumatology. Not something I preached on before, even though I've been preaching now for, for a number of years. I haven't really preached on a particular pneumatology. thought we would take that opportunity over these next few weeks. Not a comprehensive look, but, but one that is competent for preaching, right? Not a, not a systematic pneumatology, but something that will encourage, help, and, and lift up, edify the people of God, we hope. So... <clears throat> uh, Last week, we looked at the Spirit of God in His essential nature as God. That He is the third person of the Trinity. That this is a necessary act of the Godhead. We talked about filiation and spiration. And although those are very hard terms, they do make a difference between Christ and the Spirit. I want to say this one more time because it is important. There is uh, in the Great East-West Schism of 1067 A.D., the Eastern churches separated themselves out uh, for many things, but especially one thing, and that was the clause in the Nicene Creed, which is called the Philoque. 
Those of you uh, who are students of church history, you'll remember this. Philoque means and the son. That's all it means. And the son. And it may sound like it's, it's not a thing of great moment. But it truly is in its implications. And we've not studied that because it's not our, it's not our purview right now. But what we have confessed in the Nicene Creed as it has come down to us, not in its original form, but as it was modified uh, later on, uh, we say that the Holy Spirit proceeds from the Father and the Son, Philoque, from all eternity. And if we were to say that, that it is in some sense equivalent to how the Son comes forth from the Father by way of what we would call generation or eternal generation or eternal begottenness, if you will, that the Son, Jesus Christ, the second person of the Trinity has always been the Son. And then we would say that the Holy Spirit proceeds only from the Father. Well, that would be an error because that would be essentially to say that God has two sons. But he doesn't have two sons. The Spirit of God proceeds from the Father and the Son in this eternal, essential uh, being of the Godhead. And beyond that, there's really very little we can say except that the personal properties of the Godhead must be maintained distinctly. That we do have three co-equal and co-eternal persons in the Godhead. The, The Father is unbegotten. The Son is eternally begotten of the Father. And the Holy Spirit proceeds from the Father and the Son from all eternity. And beside that, there may not be much more that we can say. But we say that much. This is what the Bible teaches us. And so we confess that. So we talked about the Spirit then being, as he is called three times that I could think of in Scripture, the Spirit of Christ. And in what way is he the Spirit of Christ? Well, he's the Spirit of Christ essentially because he proceeds from the Father and the Son. And so in that sense, he is the Spirit of Christ. But he is also the Spirit of Christ economically in that it is the Lord Jesus Christ as mediator that sends the Spirit to all his elect in time, in the proper time, to begin his ministry to them that will end in their regeneration and glory. And so there is a time that the Spirit of God will come upon all that Christ has died for, all that he has purchased. He will come upon them. He will give them new hearts. He will cause them, as we read in this passage here, to love one another with a pure heart fervently, which they cannot do of their own nature. They must receive a new heart to do that. Otherwise, we love ourselves fervently, and that's really about it. Oh, we might love others, right? But what's the payoff? We love others, and we, we use that word love in saying that. It's not really love. It's just another manifestation of pride and selfishness because we get good props from that. It's only biblical love that is sacrificial and redemptive in that true sense. So, We talked about that last week. And then the third thing that we talked about last week was that the Word and the Spirit always go together. And beloved, we cannot emphasize that enough as John Owen did in, in our quotation here. So we want to emphasize that yet again, that the Word and Spirit go together. We do not believe that the Word has an intrinsic power of its own. How much power... And this is Owen's example. I think it's a good one. How much power did that Old Testament word, that gospel, have in that day to convert the Jews? How many of them were converted? Well, in that one comparison that the apostle and the prophet does, right? Jeremiah 31 and Hebrews chapter 8. We learn that when they came out of Egypt, how many believers were there? We can pretty much count them on one hand, can't we? Joshua, Moses, Aaron, Miriam, Caleb. Any others spoken by name? No. Perhaps others. Maybe their wives, right? Miriam's 
husband, if she had one, I don't know. Right? But, but perhaps there were a few. But out of two and a half million, we can count that on one hand. How much efficacy did the receiving of the word of God at Sinai in the book of the covenant that was read to them at the base of Sinai, where they raised their hands to heaven and said, all that the Lord has commanded we will do. How much good did that do them when they came to Kadesh Barnea one year later? We're not left to wonder. We're not left to guess. Because at Kadesh Barnea they said no. And they would not enter into the land of rest. And God says all of you are unbelievers. You have not mixed with faith the gospel that was preached unto you. That's Hebrews chapter 4 verses 1 through 5. No, the word has no intrinsic power of its own. Although sometimes in scripture it is spoken of as if it did. Because of the importance of the word. But then there are other times where it's the spirit that's spoken of as operating maybe even alone. Without the word. And yet we know that's not true because of all those other passages. And so comparing scripture with scripture and bringing all of the relevant scripture data together. We learn that the word and spirit go together. Even in this passage. By him do believe in God that is by Christ. In the end of verse 21, and then you've purified your souls to unfeigned or in obeying the truth through unfeigned love of the brethren by the Spirit. And so we see that ministry of the Spirit of God with the Word of God being born again. Are we born again by the Word of God? Yes. Are we born again by the Spirit of God? Yes. We're born again by both of those things working together. There are some. That are alive today. We call them the enthusiasts. Or they used to call them that. Maybe, maybe charismatic is a better name t- today. Although I don't like calling them charismatic. Because really the word charismatic simply means uh, those who are emphasizing the gifts. Right? Well the gift of the spirit is a great gift. But, we, but that's common parlance. And so we use it. And so we would say uh, or many of them would say that the spirit works apart from the word. I don't need the word of God. I have the spirit of God. We say, my, 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 my poor brother, no, that's not true. You must have the spirit and the word of God because the spirit of God takes that which belongs to Christ. That is his very word. The all things whatsoever I have commanded you that Christ commanded his apostles to teach, to make disciples with. He will usher that to our minds. The Spirit does not work in regeneration apart from the Word of God, at least in that ordinary sense. Now, there may be elect persons that are incapable of being outwardly called by the Word of God. We understand that. And so, in such times as that, the Spirit works in an extraordinary fashion, however He wills. John chapter 3. He's the Spirit that blows where He listeth, everywhere He goes, to all of the elect. To regenerate them. To give them new hearts. To draw them to Christ. If they are incapable of being called by the word. Then he'll work in an extraordinary way. To bring them to Christ. But I do want to say this. About that particular doctrine. I want to say this. That that we will sometimes look upon a person. And we'll see them in what we have maybe termed. In our medical industry. a, A perpetually vegetative estate. Well, that's not, I mean, that's kind of an insulting thing, you know, to, to say vegetative in that sense. We know what we mean when we say that, and certainly we're not insulting when we say that. But because we have labeled someone in a persistently vegetative estate, it really doesn't mean anything, does it, as, to, as far as what we actually know about them. There may be no brain waves on the screen. And yet the Lord is doing a mighty work by his word and spirit in their souls that is inscrutable to us. So let's be careful. Let's be careful not to be such empiricists. We do want to make use of our empirical faculties as God has given them to us to make a way in this world. But let's not tag them with so much efficacy that we're able to say we can't see it so it doesn't exist. 
There are lots of things we can't see that we know exist. As a matter of fact, we're told that that's what the essence of faith is. It's the proof of things not seen. Isn't it? So there are things that perhaps, uh, you know, there are people that have been in, quote, permanently vegetative estates that have recovered from such things. And they have said things like, well, I heard every word you were saying. The Lord was able, right, to reach into their minds and to give them knowledge of what was going on around them. And if you were there reading the scripture or confession of faith or some other godly work to them, they would have heard. And the Spirit may work with the Word even in someone in a permanently vegetative estate to bring them to faith in Christ. Right? So let's remember that too. But there are extraordinary times, we suppose, where the Spirit works in that extraordinary way. But I'm assuming that none of you are uh, subsuming yourselves under that extraordinary uh, manifestation. And so we're all looking for the Word and Spirit to come together to teach us, to enliven us, to give us new hearts, to embrace Jesus Christ freely offered to us in the gospel by that effectual call and then to continue to work and to strengthen and to enliven us as the days go by. The word and spirit go together. And we talked about that from John 3.34 from this passage here. We talked about uh, being begotten again by the word of God is how James will say it, right? In James chapter 1 verse 18 and, and other passages of scripture where those two things are brought together. All right, with that as uh, catching up where we left off last week, now we're going to move on to talk about the Spirit Himself in the various duties, names, titles, and so on that He's given redemptively in Scripture. And we're not going to hurry through this. We're going to take our time, and we're going to make some use. My, my pattern here is to reveal this Uh, this particular thing that the Bible says about the Spirit of God, to draw it out or flesh it out, and then to make an application of it, and then to move on to the next one. So there's not going to be a lot of application. Perhaps at the end we'll apply as we go. Okay? So with that as the intro, let's move on to this first work of the Spirit of God, and that is that He is the revealer of the things of Christ. He is the revealer of, of the things of Christ. The uproom discourse, I suppose, would be key to our understanding this, but many other passages of Scripture as well. But let me just remind you, without turning to the uproom discourse, let me remind you what Jesus said to his disciples there. He said, I'm going away. <clears throat> and they were sorrowful. What's going to happen? We've, had, we've followed this guy for three years. What's going to happen? How, how will we know when to stand up, sit down, turn left, turn right? How will we know how to minister? He sent us out as, as, um, as seven and then as 70. He sent us out to preach the word. He sent us, he instructed us. He made known to us all things that the Father had given him. That's how Jesus puts it in John 17. Um, we have followed him around. We are in, in a very real sense dependent upon him. He's been our master, we, his disciples. We've followed him like John's disciples followed John. But even more closely than that, and that relationship between discipler and having a cadre of disciples to follow you around, that was a primary means of teaching in those days. Remember that Paul will say, I sat under the feet of Gamaliel. Well, they sat under the feet of Christ for three years Going in and out. As a matter of fact, Peter will make that a, uh, uh, a necessary qualification for the twelfth apostle that needs to come in Judas's bishopric, right? And they will say, what about that? Well, it's necessary that they who've been with us the whole time, gone out and come in with us the whole time that Jesus ministered, from the time where he first appeared until the time he was taken up, to be a witness to his resurrection. So here they are, now hearing Jesus says, I'm going away, and where I go, you won't be able to follow me. And because I've said this to you, Christ says, sorrow has filled your heart. But I don't want you to be sorrowful, because I will send you something. 
I will send you something from the Father. I will send from the Father. Notice the Father and the Son send redemptively the Spirit. And what do they send the Spirit to do? He will bring to mind all things whatsoever I have taught you. It is the Spirit's job to be the revealer of the things of Christ. To teach us what Christ has wrought for us. To bring those things to us that we might have knowledge, comfort, encouragement, that prodding that we need, right? That goading that we need. That we might have many, many things. This is the first and most important of this ministry of the Spirit that we'll be talking about. He is the revealer of the things of Christ. So let's look at a few passages together to show us that. First of all, he was the revealer par excellence to the apostles and prophets. That's an important point for us to remember in Ephesians chapter 3. Verse 1, for this cause I, Paul, the prisoner of Jesus Christ, for you Gentiles, if ye have heard of the dispensation of the grace of God which is given me to you, word, how that by revelation he made known unto me the mystery, as I wrote afore in a few words, whereby when ye read, ye may understand my knowledge in the mystery of Christ, which in other ages was not made known unto the sons of man, as it is now revealed unto his Holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. Why do the Spirit and the Word go together? Why is this important? And why is there this this consistency, if you will, among the charismatic churches? What word did Paul have? Or the other apostles, what word did they have when they received the Spirit of God and wrote the bulk of the New Testament? Well, they had the word of the Old Testament, and that served as their Bible, and that was often the sermon text of their preaching, wasn't it? But beyond that, they wrote the rest of the Bible. And so, there are churches today that claim to have living apostles who can write scripture without the word. The difficulty with that is that they never truly do write scripture. And they never really receive that word as, say, you and I would receive the very word of God, do they? They recognize that their apostles and their prophets are not infallible like the apostles and prophets were of the first century. There's an inconsistency there. And we say... Thankfully, there is an inconsistency there. But here, notice, it is that mystery of Christ, the things of Christ, which the apostles and prophets of the first century century received, and we receive the largesse of that, we receive the issue of that in the writing of the New Testament. This is why for us, the Word and the Spirit must go together. So, to the apostles and prophets. But then notice, to the prophets of old, and we've said this before, we'll not belabor it here, but 2 Peter 1, 18 through 21, 2 Peter chapter 3, verses 1 and 2, and then 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 11. And in those three passages, Peter will tell us in 111 of 1 Peter that the, the prophets that spoke of old, they spoke by the Spirit of Christ. In 2 Peter 1, 18-21, Peter will say that this word that we have, this more sure word of prophecy, is more sure than what? Than a shining robed Christ, a voice booming out of heaven, and the appearance of Moses and Elijah. And then in 2 Peter chapter 3, 1 and 2, Peter will tell us that we should give great heed to the prophets as they wrote of old, and to the apostles of the Lord Jesus Christ, because they also speak by the Spirit of God. In the third instance, in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, this is an interesting passage. Um, We have talked about it before here. For those of you who have not heard the discussion, it is certainly, uh, without controversy, the opinion of the older commentators, the Reformation era 
commentators and those who came, you know, one or two generations after them, that 1 Corinthians 12, 1 through 10, or 1 through 11, and then Romans chapter 12, verses 1 through about 7 or 8, in the first section of both of those chapters, we're speaking about the officers of the church. Modern commentators read 1 Corinthians 1 through 12, uh, 1 through 11, and what do they hear? Well, they hear uh, a particular kind of egalitarian read, uh, which is more popular in our age than it was in those older days. Um, and so notice how Paul begins. Now concerning spiritual gifts, and you'll note in your authorized version that the word gift is in italics. Now concerning the spirituals is, is what's literally said. And what are, quote, the spirituals? I don't think we're left to guess in that. In 1 Corinthians chapter 14, uh, what he will say is in verse, well, let's see, where is it? There it is in verse 37. If any man think himself to be a prophet or spiritual, right? Prophet or spiritual. And I take those to mean that that the word spiritual is being used for that, that uh, church office that was extraordinary in the first century where the churches were endued with those who were extraordinary like apostles and prophets to speak the word of God to them. And so if we, were, if we were to read through chapter 12 in the first 11 verses, we would hear their diversities of gifts, but the same spirit, diversities of administrations, but the same Lord, and there are diversities of operations, but it is the same God which worketh all in all. Notice the Trinitarian formula there. That the Spirit of God, which Paul is going to speak of here a little bit later, is doing nothing except taking that which comes from the Father and the Son and ushering it to the church through those appointed officers. The apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, teachers, elders, governing elders, and deacons. And they all come into view here in 1 Corinthians chapter 12 and in Romans chapter 12, about verses 1 through 6 or 7. And then finally, there is an illumination to all of the people of God in 2 Corinthians, sorry, 1 Corinthians chapter 2. Notice what we read there, verse 10. But God hath revealed them unto us by his Spirit, for the Spirit searcheth all things, yea, the deep things of God. For what man knoweth the things of a man, save the spirit of man which is in him, even so the things of God knoweth no man but the spirit of God. Now, we have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit which is of God, that we might know the things that are freely given to us of God, which things also we speak not in the words of man's, which man's wisdom teacheth, but which the Holy Ghost teacheth, comparing spiritual things with spiritual. But the natural man receiveth not the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness unto him, neither can he know them, because they are spiritually discerned. But he that is spiritual judgeth all things, yet he himself is judged of no man, for who hath known the mind of the Lord that he may instruct him, but we have the mind of Christ. And so what Paul does there is he sets a proper order. We, these officers of the church, we have the Spirit of God, and we bring those things to you in our teaching ministry, and the Spirit of God ushers those things to your present thoughts that you may know them as well. There are many other passages we could turn to in the New Testament, but... We'll, we'll go ahead and leave it there. Let's go ahead and make some application then. The Spirit of God is indispensable to the people of God. It is the Spirit of God that opens the heart, like he did in the days of Paul when he ministered in Philippi. We read of a certain lady there, a seller of purple. Her name was Lydia, a very well-to-do woman. Uh, she had her own household and servants in it. And she was meeting with others who, uh, not having a synagogue in that city, met by the riverside on the Sabbath day to pray. They came together to pray. They made use of the means of grace that they had. 
And as Paul preached the gospel to that troop of folks, we only read of one who gave attendance to the words of Paul, and that was Lydia. And the reason she did so is because the Lord opened her heart. Whose heart? The Lord opened. And of course, what that means is the Lord, the Spirit. The Spirit of God opened her heart. And when he opened her heart, she attended on the things which were spoken of by Paul and the other apostles. And then also uh, she had good works to back up her claim to faith in Christ in that she said, if you found me faithful, come into my house. Lodge with me. I'll provide for you. I'll give you a base of operations here in Philippi. We don't know how long they stayed there with Lydia, but they do know that they but we do know that they had a home there. Beloved, if it is the Spirit of God that opens the heart of God's people that they will attend to the preaching of the word, let me say it this way that the ministers that preach the gospel must be endued with the Spirit of God to preach it rightly, and the people of God that receive that word must be endued with the Spirit of God that they might receive it rightly. And so one of the first applications that we want to make is we want to pray for the ministers of the gospel, we want to pray for the members of the church, as, um, as we all together study the word of God, we want to pray for our presbyteries and for our churches that the spirit of God might be free among us. We will not advance, beloved. We will not advance in this world as the kingdom of God without the ministry of the spirit. We can be as clever as we want to be. We can be as innovative as we want to be. And of course, having a background in, uh, somewhat in Scottish Presbyterians, we say, innovation? What is that? No such thing, right? We don't innovate. We receive and conserve the things of the Spirit of God. We don't want to innovate. We don't want to make stuff up. We want to listen We want to hear the voice of our shepherd, the Lord Jesus, as his voice is ushered to us by the Spirit of God. And so in our doctrine, in our government, in our worship, in our practice, in our ministry, in our policy, we want to listen for the voice of that good spirit. Well, this is something to pray for. We want to pray that the Spirit of God would be free among us, that that as he is called the good spirit, as he's also called the, the free spirit, that he would uphold us and that he would, uh, he would perform his ministry unto us. We do come, don't we, beloved, as beggars in the courts of Christ. We have nothing to offer him. We have no cleverness nor creativity nor genius to offer to the church. No, the ideas that endure are those which come from the Spirit of God. Those that are truly efficacious. Oh, we may stir up a frenzy and a lot of apparent efficacy. But beloved, if we're counting noses, we've already lost to Rome, haven't we? Certainly, this is not the gauge of what is effectual. The gauge of what is effectual is that which comes by the Spirit of God. As he brings the things of Christ to us. Jesus will go so far as to say. It is expedient for you that I go away. Because when I send you the spirit. He will do things far beyond what I could do here. Being in bodily presence. He will do things far beyond that. You'll do greater works than I've ever done. Jesus will say. You're going to expand my kingdom to the ends of the world. You're going to teach the truth unto kings and Gentiles and those who were, as it says in Psalm 110, those who begin their career as the enemies of God, but the king one day through the sweet influences of those spirit will rule in the inmost parts of his enemies. He will turn them to himself. Who can turn a heart, beloved? Certainly this pastor can't. It's outside of my my wheelhouse. I don't have the tools for that. 
I exercise the tools the Lord has given me, but the Lord gives the increase. As the apostle said, I planted, Apollos watered, God gave the increase. And so the first thing is that the Spirit of God is the great revealer of the things of God. And how has he chosen to do that? He's chosen to do it by the ministry of the word. And he will bring all that which is written in the Bible, all of its implications, all of its applications, he will, as the phrase is popular today, he will unpack that which the prophets and the apostles wrote of the Old and New Testament and make use of it in the people of God in this age that we may be a people not only quote, saved from the wrath to come, end quote, but edified and built up, able to admonish one another by the Spirit of God. So this is the the first and great ministry of the Spirit that he will take all that Christ has and he will bring it to us. It is for this reason that Jesus calls the Spirit of God the Spirit of Truth. He is the spirit of truth. He will bring the truth of the scripture to us. And when in the the providence and kindness and grace of God that we are endued rightly with that spirit of God, beloved, it is at those times that we will be impervious to error because of that good spirit. Is the church fraught with error today? It is, because we have not listened to that spirit. We have sought other spirits instead. Sometimes it's the spirit of the age. And the spirit of the age enters into the church and and doctrine then becomes, or sound doctrine becomes evil spoken of. Sometimes it's another spirit that the, the apostle Paul will talk about there in 2 Corinthians chapter 11. If some comes unto you and preaches another Jesus whom we have not preached and offers up unto you another spirit which we have not offered and preaches another gospel which we have not taught you, you might bear well with him. And the Corinthian church certainly was fraught through with much error and difficulty because of it. No, beloved, let us in this first application then pray that God would be pleased to send his spirit to us and that he would be to us the spirit of truth, that he would convict us of sin and righteousness and judgment, that judgment would begin in the house of God, that we would see our faults and foibles and weaknesses and those places where we have turned away from the truth. And remember what Paul told Timothy In 2 Timothy chapter 4, the time is coming where their ears will be turned away from the truth and they will give heed unto fables. We're about to read the pastoral epistles. We will hear about fables often in the pastoral epistles. What are fables? That's when the spirit of the age catches a gear in the church and the people of God begin to hearken to it rather than to sound wisdom, scriptural wisdom. So that's number one. He is the revealer of the things of Christ, and let us pray for that revelation of the Spirit. The second, he is the leader of the people of God. And once again, we we must talk in warning terms, because there are many that would claim the leadership of the Spirit in this activity or that activity where they are want to understand that the spirit is leading them apart from the word of God. Beloved, I've had people telling me in time past as a minister, I've been on the phone with someone who's having some marital troubles. And this person said to me, the spirit is leading me out of my marriage. (laughs) Really? Well, it may be a spirit that is leading you out of your marriage, but it is not the spirit that is leading you in that way. But the Spirit of God is the leader of the people of God, is he not? 
Let's look at a few passages of Scripture. In Luke chapter 4, verse 1, you don't need to turn there. This is when Jesus, at the beginning of his earthly ministry, is tempted of the devil 40 days in the wilderness. And it says that the Spirit led Jesus into the wilderness to be tempted of the devil. Why is it phrased like that? Well, let us remember something about Christ. Okay? We want to remember something about Christ that we learn in John chapter 3. And that is... That when Christ is endued with the Spirit of God as a man, and remember he's fully human, body and soul, and he works, as Christ himself told us, by the Spirit. He came, subjected himself to all of the weaknesses of humanity without sin, and was completely endued with the Spirit of God. In John chapter 3 we read, I had an Elmer Fudd moment there. In John chapter 3, we read that he he hath not the Spirit with measure, or he hath the Spirit without measure. The measure of the Spirit of God that Christ has as a man is without measure. He is endued with the Spirit of God like all men should be, in other words. And so when Luke writes that he was led of the Spirit into the wilderness. There's no disconnect there between Christ and the Spirit. He has the Spirit without measure. There's no sin in Christ. There's no selfishness in Christ. There's no hidden agenda or even unknown to himself agenda, right? That would, where he might be saying, well, you know, I'm led to do this, where that leading is contrary to sound wisdom, doctrine, Bible, and so on. No, Jesus was rightly led by the Spirit. And Jesus, as our example, tells us that yes, the Spirit does lead the people of God. But we don't need to rely only on that passage. We can turn together to Romans chapter 8 for a moment. I'd like to show you something about the leading of the Spirit before we close. This will be the last particular that we talk about today. If you're wondering how long is this guy going to go. One more, just this one. Notice in verse, well, let's see, verse 10. And if Christ be in you, the body is dead because of sin, but the spirit is life because of righteousness. But if the spirit of him that raised up Jesus from the dead dwell in you, he that raised up Christ from the dead shall also quicken your mortal bodies by his spirit that dwelleth in you. Therefore, brethren, we are debtors, not to the flesh to live after the flesh. For if ye live after the flesh, ye shall die. But if ye, through the Spirit, do mortify the deeds of the body, ye shall live. For as many as are led by the Spirit of God, they are the sons of God. Okay. So there is a leading of the Spirit that belongs to every Christian. But, but beloved, what I want to caution you about when we go speaking in that way, is that the passages that speak about the leading of the Spirit, it's never, you know, um, should I buy Cheerios or cornflakes? And I was led by the Spirit to buy Cheerios instead. And I don't mean to trivialize, because it's not a trivial point when people are saying, the Spirit led me to this city or that city or this house or that house or this job or that job. It's not a trivial thing, is it? If the Spirit led you to that, then that is an infallible leading. We must be consistent here. But aren't we want to say that even though we have perhaps felt led or drawn to a particular course or other, and perhaps even by the Spirit of God, that we know that we can be wrong? We do know that, don't we? And that there have been times, haven't there? When we have been absolutely convinced of the holiness and uprightness and leading of the Spirit in a particular action only to see that it was a horrible mistake. And we had misjudged everything. Some of you will remember the difficulties that we went through at the last church. One of the former members of that church came to us afterward and said, We were wrong about everything. And it was a source of grief for them for a number of years. We can be wrong. No matter how 
fully persuaded we have been. And the other thing that I want you to notice about these passages here is that when we talk about the leading of the Spirit, it never speaks about things that are like, you know, this job or that job, cornflakes or Cheerios. It's always put in a moral context. It's always put in a moral context. Notice here in Romans 8 for a moment. We just read this. But notice, to live after the flesh. If you live after the flesh, you will die. But if through the Spirit you do mortify the deeds of the body, you shall live for as many as are led by the Spirit of God. They are the sons of God. Turn with me, if you will, to Psalm 143. Verse 9. Deliver me, O Lord, from mine enemies. I flee to thee to hide Teach me to do thy will, for thou art my God. Thy spirit is good. Lead me into the land of uprightness. You hear that? It's not lead me to this job or that job, this meal or that meal, this restaurant or that restaurant, this car or that car, this geography or that geography. It's lead me to uprightness. This is the leading of the Spirit of God. It is the Spirit of God that leads us to that which is morally upright in the sight of God. Let's see it also from Isaiah chapter 48. Verse 16. Come ye near unto me. Hear ye this. I have not spoken in secret from the beginning. From the time that it was, there am I and now... The Lord God and His Spirit hath sent me. Thus saith the Lord thy Redeemer, the Holy One of Israel, I am the Lord thy God, which teacheth thee to profit, which leadeth thee by the way that thou shouldest go. Oh, that thou hadst hearkened to my commandments. Once again, the leading is moral. It is in keeping with the commandments of God. And isn't that what the Apostle Paul means in Galatians chapter 5? Isn't that what he's teaching us also? The ministry, the leading ministry of the Spirit is indeed away from that which is morally uh, questionable and into that which is morally acceptable. So we'll begin our reading in verse 16. This I say then, walk in the Spirit and ye shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. For the flesh lusteth against the spirit, and the spirit against the flesh. And these are contrary, the one to the other, so that ye cannot do the things that ye would. But if ye be led by the spirit, ye are not under the law. I'll explain what that means in just a moment. Now the works of the flesh are manifest, which are these. Adultery, fornication, uncleanness, lasciviousness, idolatry, witchcraft, hatred, Variance, emulations, wrath, strife, seditions, heresies, envyings, murders, drunkenness, revelings, and such like. Of the which I tell you before, as I have told you in time past, that they which do such things shall not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, temperance. Against such there is no law. This is the way that Paul means, if ye are led by the Spirit, ye are not under the law. Not that the law means nothing to you anymore, as some have, have said in the New Testament era, but that you are not under the law as a covenant of works in the sense that your standing with God and, and the ministry of the Spirit to you is somehow dependent on your ability to obey. Actually, what he says here is that the Spirit brings to you, in his leadership of you, those inward attitudes that, that uh, work themselves out into an obedient and lawful people. Law-abiding people, if you will. You can always tell tyrants, can't you? Civil tyrants. They don't like Christians. Why don't... Civil tyrants, not like Christians. Because Christians stand against evil, no matter where it's found. 
Christians, especially those who come out of the heritage of the Reformation, will remind the civil magistrate that he is God's minister for good and that he will give account to God. Oh, rulers don't like that. They don't want to hear that. They want it to be Rex, Lex, rather than Lex, Rex. Right? The king is law rather than the law is over the king. But a good magistrate, he craves Christians in his bounds. He knows that righteousness exalts a nation and sin is a reproach to any people. And that if he has Christians within his bounds, that they are some of the best and most law-abiding citizens. And that when they disobey him, he better stand up and take notice because they're only doing so. Because he has brought them into the crosshairs of heaven if they were to obey him. And he should take note of that. In other words, proper Christian resistance to tyranny only works if at all the other times we are an obedient and law-abiding citizenry endued with the fruit of the Spirit following the leading of the Spirit against which there is no law. So let's remember that, that... The other thing that the Spirit of God does is He leads us, but He leads us into all that Christ taught. He leads us into the the commandments of Christ. Jesus said, if you love me, you keep my commandments. And so one of the things that the Spirit of God does, coupled with the Word, as the commandments of God, as the morality of God is preached, as the gospel of Christ is preached, as the as the uh, advice, counsel, and wisdom of the scriptures is preached, what does the Spirit of God do? Induce us with that ability in our hearts to rise up to meet that teaching. He leads us according to the word of God. What a blessed, blessed thing that is. We would be in the dark then without the Spirit of God. Even at the preaching of the word, we would be in the dark. Even coming and sitting under the preached word, no matter how good the preaching is, without the Spirit of God, it's no good to us. Some have, uh, some have mused aloud in history. How did Calvin become a, quote, Calvinist? How, do, how, was he, uh, how did he come to his conclusions about the sovereignty of God? It was, it was because he had this wondrous pastor's heart that was given to him by the Spirit of God. And so what he does is he looks out over the same congregation week by week. And actually for Calvin, it was more than week by week, right? They met, in some cases, almost every day. And as he preaches and as people are hearing, everybody is hearing the same thing. Everybody's hearing the same text opened up. Everyone is hearing the same timber in the minister's voice. The same animate or disanimate kind of preaching. I'm a little more animated than some. Some are a little bit more animated than me. But, the, but you all are hearing the same thing. But we may not all rise up and leave this sermon with the same fruit. Isn't that true? And if there is any fruitfulness there, well, this fruit then comes from the Spirit of Christ as he is sent to lead us into all truth. So it is not a mystical leading, but an understanding and keeping with the word of the Lord as to what direction we ought to take in that moral sense. The context is morality and all of those things that we look for. And so in learning to apply then all of the law of the Lord in such a way as to learn to glorify God in all of our eating and drinking or whatsoever we do, there are indifferent things in the Christian life where we are at liberty to decide on a myriad of courses. And yet, in deciding one thing over another, we will do as as the Lord is pleased to grant to us that free spirit, we will bring to bear the implications and applications of Scripture on each of those courses to see if there are, true, there are truly any courses that are equal or not. And with His help, we will learn to put aside our biases. Right? 
You remember Lot's syndrome. Remember what Lot's syndrome is? The herdsmen of Lot and the herdsmen of Abraham ended up fighting together. We'll close with this illustration. They ended up fighting together because they had become so prosperous and numerous that there was not enough grazing, not enough water for them both. And so Abraham comes to Lot. Actually, he's called Abram in those days. He comes to Lot and he says, Lot, look around. You go left, I'll go right. You go north, I'll go south. I'll give you first dibs. You choose where you want to go. And I'll go the other direction. What a magnanimous thing. And yet he did. And Abram is being led by the Spirit of God in that, isn't he? And so, Lot looks over all around, right? He's standing on a hilltop somewhere and he looks around. Ooh, ooh, what's that land over there? It's well watered like the garden of God. I'm going to go there. This is chapter 13. And at the end of chapter 13, the very last verse that Moses writes, but the men of Sodom were exceedingly wicked before the Lord. Right? And so Lot moves his tent to the plains toward Sodom. A little bit later on, we see Lot. He's in the gate. A little bit later, we see Lot, and he's downtown Sodom, isn't he? He's downtown. He made a choice that was based on his eyes and his carnal delights. And he was obviously not under the leading of the Spirit of God. Beloved, we can make such choices just like that. We can make choices according to our eyes, according to our biases. Oh, I'm going to hang out with these people because I get good strokes from them. It's easy for a pastor to do. I'll, this is one of the temptations that pastors have, right? They, they, um, they cozen up to their acolytes. And those people that are more difficult, that are more disagreeable, they tend to you know, move back from them. Oh, I don't... I don't really need to hear what that one has to say. Well, it's a temptation, isn't it? When we are required as ministers and we're under command, and if we're being led by the Spirit, we're going to love everyone. And we're going to spend time with all of God's people, right? That he's put under our charge. So, beloved, then, two things today. That the Spirit of God is the revealer of God. And so we pray that the Spirit of God would usher to our present thoughts the things of Christ. Second, that He would lead us. That is, that He would lead us into all uprightness. That He would teach us how to think through our choices in such a way that we understand, which is what we heard last week from the afternoon sermon, that the Bible does really pertain to every activity that we do. And we would, with the Spirit of God's help, the word of God informing our thoughts, learn how to bring every thought captive to the obedience of Christ, that we might know what God would say about us moving here or there, and we would bring all of the relevant scripture data to bear on that, and that the Spirit of God might lead us in that way into all truth. With that then, let's stand and call upon the Lord. Our dear Heavenly Father, we thank Thee for that which thou hast brought to us today uh, from thy word. We thank thee for the ministry of the Spirit. We thank thee, Lord, that while he is uh, that uh, inscrutable Spirit, that he blows where he wills like the wind, we see his effects but not himself. Lord, we confess that often we are... Uh, we don't notice, we don't uh, take notice, we don't bring to our, to our present thoughts any sort of notice or cognizance of his work in us, whether it would be to illumine us, to reveal to us thy truth, or to lead us in that truth. Oh Lord, we pray that we might petition thee often by the mercies of Christ and by his good work and by his mediation to cause thy spirit to be free among us to reveal to us those great things that Christ has purchased for us. That we have not the spirit of the world, but the spirit of God, that we may know those things that are freely given to us of God. Oh Lord, that we might understand. And then appropriate, make use of those things. 
And that we would have confidence in asking. As well, Father, we pray that we might know that spirit as the leader of thy people as well. And that thou wouldst lead us into all truth and uprightness. And that thou wouldst lead us with every decision that we must make to inform that decision by thy word and spirit. To see whether or not it is truly a neutral decision among many. That thou wouldst deliver us from our own biases, carnal delights and joys as we make such decisions. And instead help us to hear thee. And in hearing thee by thy word and spirit. To follow that leading. That we would listen for the voice of our shepherd, the Lord Jesus. And follow him wherever he leads us by his spirit. And nowhere he does not. We thank thee in Christ Jesus name. Amen.